Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through their industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. And today we have John Watkiss, high stakes performance coach, professional speaker, voiceover artist, and award winning performer, the first Canadian born actor to play Mufasa in the Disney musical The Lion King. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Ajay. Glad to be here and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. And it's so nice to have you have the Mufasa of the Disney musical King, musical The Lion King onto the show. So we'll be talking about, John, how to make your speech sound music, how to capture and keep audience attention, especially in this year, 2023. You know, when people have so many gadgets in hand and the speaker is speaking. And how do they keep it? So firstly, uh, John, a bit to understand exactly uh, how did this, you know, Mufasa thing happen while you were doing what you were doing? Let's begin from there. The Lion King is, is a great inspiration in itself. Sure. Interestingly enough, I was speaking full time when I auditioned for The Lion King. I can't remember what city I was returning from, but I picked up an edition of the Toronto Star newspaper. And there was an article. The article said, Singers Wanted for the Lion King. And you had to come with 16 bars of a song that would be a cappella. Now, based on my history, I should have looked at it and said, That's nice. You see, I used to be a theater arts major in my high school. And I failed theater arts and it kicked me out of the school. And even while I was in the school, I wasn't able to make the school musical. So I had no history that should have said, go and audition for The Lion King. Well, I showed up the Saturday morning and there were hundreds of people. And the person who was signing everyone up said, do you have your sheet music? Now the ad said, that they wanted a cappella, which meant no music. And they told me I had three hours before I auditioned. So I said, sure. And I went to the store, the music store, and I bought some sheet music for my favorite karaoke song. I just called to say, I love you. And I went back to the audition. They brought me in, I sang, and the, the casting director, her name was Stephanie, she said, what kiss? did you ever audition for Rent before? And I said, no. She said, but I know your name. I said, well, I haven't auditioned for anything. She says, wait a second. Do you know Joshua Watkiss? I said, yes, he's my son. And Joshua was four at the time. She said, oh, well, I hire Joshua for commercials all the time. Is he trying out for the show? I thought, no, but I, I would like to. <laughs> well... Long story short, I did the audition. They called me back. In fact, that audition, they gave me a script for Mufasa. And they brought me back for two more auditions after that. And I was given the role of understudy. Now, this was the original Canadian cast. And the person who received the role of Mufasa, Eugene Clark, was an American. So I was the first Canadian-born actor to play the role of Mufasa. And, and I have to tell you, the very first time that I went on stage, I got stage fright. As soon as the shout went out, I 
I froze. And I stood back there in my lion costume and I said to Topaz, who was going to go on stage with me, I can't do this. So there was a big scene behind stage. Eventually I got in and I did the show. That's how it all came to be. It wasn't something I had planned. There was no goal to be a performer in an award-winning show, but I showed up. And when I showed up, I was in the right place at the right time with the right set of skills. And that wrote the rest of my story. Indeed a good story and very inspiring one indeed, John, that you tried for something and then uh, you found what exactly you are meant for. And that, that has given a new meaning, a new uh, understanding to what you do at the moment. Now talking of stage fright, John, a lot of people uh, have to speak on the stage, either in their office, in their small gathering, in a public forum, anywhere. Many people don't, their job may not require them to, but sometimes it just happens. And that is where have, they have to speak. And everybody, it is very natural. You got stage fright in spite of so much of experience. Even I do. Even every time that I come for these live shows, I still need to have so many things in my mind. Uh, and, and the biggest thing is that if I have hit the live button or not. Several, a couple of times it has happened that I have not pressed the live button, but the guests have been very nice about it. And then, you know, after 10, five minutes, seven minutes, I had to redo the whole thing from the beginning. So how do people, you know, tackle this stage fright? How do, first thing is, you know, forget about the story part. First, about everything. How does, uh, you know, how do, does a simple person who may need to speak, or who has to speak as they grow up the ladder, how do they make themselves stage ready? Let's begin from there. And such a deep question to start, Ajay. I would say this, because it's a person who doesn't naturally speak or normally speak as part of their job, if they wait until the day that they're called to present, it is highly unlikely they will ever get rid of the nerves every single time because overcoming the nerves is, is a process. And if you look at any athlete, any musician, anyone who has become excellent in any skill, it's repetition of that skill. So let's go back to the fear part of it. If you haven't practiced the skill and now you know you're going to be put on center stage to speak, it's natural that you are going to be nervous if you don't feel confident in your ability. That first day, even though I had chances to practice the actual show, I had never done the show live at Mufasa and it wrecked me because in my head, I was thinking I can't do this. So there's one step and that is what's happening in your head. Usually when we're nervous, we're thinking I can't do this what if I mess up? What if I make a mistake? What if I forget what I'm about to say? All of those thoughts are going to make you more nervous. And so it's essential to change your mind. Instead of focusing on yourself, focus on the audience, the, the information you're about to share with them. How is it going to help them? How will their situation improve as a result of hearing you? 
when you start that outward focus, you're no longer nervous because you're seeing the results of what you're thinking about, or at least you're reducing the nervousness. If, however, you keep the focus on yourself and whether you are going to be funny or boring, you're bound to become more nervous. So the first key is that mindset, because physically what's happening is the exact same whether you're nervous or you're excited. So if you simply tell yourself that you're feeling this way, these feelings that are happening, the blood that is recirculating or the heartbeat going faster or the sweat, it's because you care about how you perform and you should care about how you perform. So if you change the mindset first, second is breathing. I recommend practicing meditation daily because if you wait until the day of the presentation and you think, now I'm going to breathe, your body doesn't know what to do with that. You're going to be hyperventilating. But if you practice every day to do mindful breathing, say four seconds inhaling through the nostrils, holding for six seconds, and then exhaling for eight seconds, if you practice that on a daily basis, especially in situations where you might get stressed out, so it's traffic, and you feel yourself getting upset, practice the breathing. You're in a, a mall, and you're standing in a long line, and you're getting frustrated, practice the breathing. Now, when you get to a situation where you have to speak and you practice the breathing, your body, your mind will know that you're trying to calm it down. But if you just take this, all right, he said four seconds, six seconds, eight seconds, and do it on the day when you have to present, it's not going to work. <laughs> so consistently practice breathing and meditation, and you do that before you speak, it will slow your heart rate down and make you feel more calm. Those are a couple ways. And then the biggest way is practice your presentation. If you don't know what you're going to say, and if you just go off the cuff, you have a right to be nervous. You don't know how it's going to turn out. Right, right. I, I guess it is very natural, but you know, people then naturally, it does not come naturally at that point in time that getting nervous <laughs> is very natural and a natural thing at that. But at that point in time, somebody who has not been to those that sort of an audience or maybe a larger audience they have to speak in front of what should be their biggest thing that they should bank on if somebody tells me you got to speak there or anybody who else what should they think of should they think of the expertise that they have or should they think that in childhood i spoke in in a, in a elocution contest or somewhere else or is it that some family member is telling do not be afraid what is it that it should be on the mind that will give him or her the biggest confidence to be ready for this big thing? What should be on their mind is the outcome the audience is going to get. And let me give you an example. I was sitting beside a friend prior to her giving a presentation, and the topic was very heavy. It was a conference she had wanted to speak at for years, and finally the opportunity had come. And she said to me, I'm very nervous. I said to her, I want you to think about how what you're going to say is going to change so many lives. And she thought about it for a second. She said, okay, I don't feel nervous. So think about the outcome. Think about the end and the benefit. When people walk away, how do they get better? How are they changed? How's your message resonated with them? Keep that on your mind. 
so that even if you forget a point or two, no one will know that. But if they get the main message, that's what you want to remember they walk away with, the main message. Right, right. So firstly, you know, John, about these situations, when you are finally ready and you have practiced it many times, you are going onto the stage. At that point in time, you have your notes ready, there's pointers ready, uh, but you are, you know, going up onto the stage. What should you think at that point in time? Should you think about, you know, how do you start your speech? When you see the audience, so many of them all looking up to you and, you know, perhaps whatever you will share. So what should we, how do you start something? What is the best way to start? Secondly, when it's a public speaking, should you think of the message or should you think of a story, uh, it in a form of a story that you are going to say? All the pointers. How do you manage those crucial, uh, say, couple of minutes as you are going up to the stage till the point you are you start, uh, you know, with your speech? When you start a speech, and you'll probably hear me give this answer for most of what you ask, is it depends on the audience. Everything that you say should be audience-centered. And by that, I mean, how much information does your audience know about what you're talking about? If they know a lot, you would start differently than if they know a little. Are they in agreement with what you have to say or are they against what you have to say? You would start differently. What type of night did they have? If you're speaking in the morning and it's first thing in the morning, but the previous night there was a celebration. Well, you may have an audience that's not fully <laughs> with you. And so you have to start differently then. The best way to start is always based on the audience. And that means, again, finding out before you get on stage and even in your preparation, what's happening before I speak? What time of day is it? Did they just have lunch? Is it first thing in the morning? Is it the end of the day? <laughs> All of those would make you start your presentation differently. And so maybe it is a story. Maybe you ask a riveting question that gets people thinking and engaged. Maybe you start with a quotation and then say something that goes against the popular quotation. So there are many different ways that you can start the speech. The key is the audience, and what's the mood of the audience at that time? And where do you want them to go? All of those will help you determine how you start your speech. Okay, okay. So uh, one is that you have started your speech. And then today we are talking about, you know, how to capture your audience uh, attention and you keep it, keep it at that. How do you capture it? Firstly, you have started. Should we, you start trying to capture from the very beginning, you know, captivate them with what you speak or you look at, listen, my expertise is going to come. So I will start with them and then the audience will, you know, get captivated. How does it work when you look at so many people in front of you? Should you change gears at that at, at stage or should you just go with a plan? How does it work? If you have the experience to know and to gauge the audience, and it's different than for some reason or another what you had planned initially, you can adjust. 
if you've done your homework right, then I'd like to try and if they're in disagreement, maybe coax them in. Or if I want to grab their interest immediately, I'll ask a question. And, and since we're talking about capturing attention, what I say at the beginning of, of a presentation sometimes is, we're told that our attention spans are getting shorter these days. Right. How many of you believe that's true? And I get them to hold up their hands. Say, okay, how many of you believe that's false? And fewer people will put up their hands. Then I take them a step further. I say, okay, now I want you to think about a teenager playing a video game. Does that teenager have any trouble paying attention to the video game? People think, well, no. I said, all right, let's take another scenario. It's a major sporting event. It's the final two minutes of the sporting event. Does the sports fanatic or enthusiast have any problem paying attention to that event? Well, no. Said, ah, so it's not so much the attention that is the problem. It is the interest. If people are interested, they will pay attention. And so now, because I have turned upside down on its head a, a popular belief or thought, I've gained their attention for at least 10 minutes. Neuroscience tells us we have 10 minutes, and then we have to change what we're doing. So I will start with a question sometimes. Other times, I will start with the Lion King shout right off the bat. It's the first thing that I do. Or I may say, six words changed my life. And hold. It, again, it goes down to the audience that I'm working with. So I can flex if I need to. I can change. On the other hand, I like to go in with a plan. Right. Right, John. So suppose in, in, in a case like that, that the audience is either not too interested, almost like a hostile audience, yes. or maybe the topic is very boring. How do you deal in that situation, even for professional speakers or people who have certain degree of, you know, experience of, of giving speeches. How do they deal with that situation? Let's start with the boring one first. If you think your topic is boring, you've already lost. It will be boring. Okay. Now, if you look at what are the repercussions, what are the possible problems that can happen if people don't get this information right. And I usually start by talking about a scenario, or at least I have my clients talk about a scenario which would show them getting this information incorrect and then recognizing that, oh, I need to pay attention because if I don't get this right, here's what could go wrong. Well, that is one way that I begin it if it's a boring topic. Another way, we go back to the questions. Give people a multiple choice because sometimes you have policy sessions where you have to talk about policy. And rather than just saying, here's the policy, you could say, is A the policy, is B the policy, or is C the policy? And have everyone answer. It's B that's the policy, and here's the reason why. Now, again, you've gauged people's interest with the multiple choice question and given them a reason. So even though the topic may seem boring, it's about how you format it and position it in order to get people to pay attention at the beginning and realize it's important. Now, there's a hostile audience. That's a little different. 
And what I recommend for people, I learned this as a speechwriter, is if it's a hostile audience, you want to imagine you're playing chess. When you're playing a chess game, you don't just think about your own moves. You think a few steps ahead and you're thinking about your opponent's moves. In other words, you say, if I move my piece here, where are the possible places they will move their piece? What are the possible steps that might take? You are now getting out of your own head and you're seeing the game from their side of the board. Imagine if you did that with your speeches, where if you say to yourself, if I make this statement from where they're sitting based on their opinion, how are they going to respond? What might they be thinking? And now when you're inside their head, when you're thinking like they're thinking, when you can see it from their point of view, then you can actually confirm their point of view. Here are some of the thoughts that people have on this topic. And you state their topic the way they would state it. The big mistake people make at this point is they say, and so this is your point, but. Once you say but, the person recognizes that you're going in another direction. So you can say, I understand how many people feel this way about the topic, and I understand why you have that thought. And then you go deeper and explain it. Because what this says, it doesn't mean that you're agreeing with the opposite point of view. It means that you're acknowledging it. So I understand your point, and I can see why, because, and once you've explained the because, another way of looking at it is this perspective. And so I've prevented any buts or stoppages or blocks because I use and instead of but. So think chess every time you present. How is your audience going to respond to what you have to say? And based on what you think they'll do, should you say something different or how should you position what you're about to say so that they will listen to what you're saying? Because otherwise they're arguing in their head with you even though they're not speaking. Right. Right. So one thing is that that they listen to you and all and you captivate there. You talk about, you know, how making your speech sound like music. How when does that happen? When does the music actually start? Playing? Oh, that's always part of the process making your speech sound like music. I didn't come up with this concept on my own. When I say that, I mean that I had written a speech for one of my clients. And the six words that she asked me were, do you play a musical instrument? And I was wondering why. Well, it turns out she said that she was told if you hire a speechwriter, make sure they're musical. Because a speech is written for the ear. And when we write, we write for the eye. So it's pronounced very differently. And she said that it should have pauses and rhythm and timing. And that when she read the speech that I had written for her, she, she thought that I was musical. So the concept comes up with, when you think about music, when we hear music, we remember it. You can still remember songs from decades ago. You probably can't remember a person's name from yesterday, but you know the lyrics word for word from a song you heard 20, 30 years ago. We remember music. We repeat music. And that will, sometimes we're walking down the street singing a song we heard someone else sing and we don't even recognize why. Right. And then most importantly, we respond to music. If you watch people when music starts playing, 
involuntarily, they will start dancing. So presentations and speeches should be the same. We should remember them, we should repeat them, and most importantly, we should respond to them by donating, by buying the product, by volunteering. So if you think about the composition of a song, it has a chorus. That's the part of the song that we sing over and over and over. That's the main message. And so every speech should have a main message. And then verses in a song tell you what the song is about. So if the chorus is not clear, the verse will give you more clarity. And I think of verses as your stories, your analogies, your statistics. So you have a chorus, which is your main message, verses, which explain it. And then when you can, a hook. A hook is something we all remember from a song. If you think about Sweet Caroline, you're Sweet Caroline, ba, ba, ba. No matter where you are, <laughs> people will sing that refrain. Why? It's a hook. It's a part that stays in the mind. And when you think of I Have a Dream, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Give me liberty or give me death. Yes, we can. Those are hooks that are repeated in speeches. So if you can, have a hook in your presentations where people can walk away repeating it. For me, I say your speech will be successful if people remember, repeat, and respond to it. And those are the three R's that stay in people's minds. So to make a speech sound like music, think of it from that main chorus, the verses that explain it, and the hook that people will always remember and repeat. Right. And... In terms of using humor, where does that come in speeches? When that should be used? Should it be used all the time? Are there times that it should be avoided? The first tip I give on humor, the first piece of advice I should say, is make sure you have a friend who will be honest with you. Because you may not be funny. Right. <laughs> yeah. Everyone is not blessed with the gift of understanding what is funny and what is not. And when you see comedians on a stage telling jokes, which is different than humor, but when they are telling jokes, they have practiced that joke so many times and they've usually practiced and thrown away even more jokes. So I'm telling you to approach with caution, have someone who is willing to tell you you're not funny <laughs> But then, even if you're not funny, we all have something funny happen to us. We all have situations that when we look back and think of it, it was, it was amusing. And it may not get a full belly laugh, but it will get enough of a laugh that people recognize it because it's happened to them. And that's really the key to humor. Where you use it, where it fits. And that's always the most important part of any element you use in the speech, where it fits. If you can use humor to lighten people up, especially let's say you have a story that is sad, is there something in the story where you can break it up so people laugh just a little bit before they go back into the seriousness? Because you don't want to keep them on this negative string. Help people look at themselves in difficult circumstances. If you help people look at themselves through humor, they're more likely to accept the message. 
So there are a number of different areas in which to use it. I don't think you should use it all throughout because then it doesn't have as much of an impact. What I will say is if you use it effectively, it's funnier than if a comedian is telling jokes because when a comedian is telling jokes, you're expecting them to be funny. If you can use humor just at the right time, it comes off as being hilarious because it wasn't expected in the moment. Right. Right, John. You are a voiceover artist. You know yeah. about this particular craft. You also talk about, you know, how to use your voice to engage an audience. How does a person who, have, who, who has his voice, his or her voice, the way it is, man made, God made, how do they use it to engage the audience? Here's the wonderful thing about the voice is you don't have to have a booming bass voice to get attention. You can vary your voice in four ways. One is your pace. And that is, are you speaking quickly? Are you speaking slowly? Many people speak at the same pace. And if you speak at the same pace, people get used to it. But if you slow down, <laughs> that little change gets people back. So regardless of whether you have a high voice, a low voice, a medium voice, if you can speed up sometimes when you're speaking and then take it down, and right. then pause, <laughs> all of that has to do with your pace. People pay attention when your pace changes. The second is the tone. Well, tone is where a lot of people miss out, and it's the most effective way to get a point across. I can say sorry. I did a video on this, so I say sorry in many different ways. If I were really serious, I'd say sorry. Or if I was upset, I'd say sorry. Or if I was not sorry at all, I'd say, sorry. <laughs> so we have a different tone of voice. And that really is about the emotion that we're feeling. Too often we know the words we want to say, but we don't use an emotion attached with those words. So the more emotion you can add, whether that is high energy or low energy or excitement or upset, Whatever emotion you can add, that will, again, draw people in. You have your pace and you have your tone. You also have your pitch. One of the mistakes people make when they're speaking in their pitches, they use what is called uptalk. So what is uptalk? Uptalk is I'm making a statement, but I keep sounding like I have a question. And now when I tell you something, you don't know if you should believe me because I keep sounding like I'm asking a question. So that is a, an idea of how we use pitch ineffectively. But a pitch can be, what? Or, what? Silly motion, but it's the range of the voice going up and down. And if you were to imagine reading a bedtime story to a child, if you were making all the different voices of all the different characters, that would change your pitch. So play with it because otherwise you get into this monotone voice and it sounds the same all the way. There's no up and there's no down. So we, we hear when a person has a monotone voice. We know that. Be aware and be flexible with your pitch. 
So then the last one is volume. You think about the, the volume. Many, very often we like to be loud. We think that loud is going to get the most attention. But would you ever walk into a room and say, I have a secret? <laughs> that would be weird. No, we walk into the room, we say, guess what I just heard? And because I say it softly, you go, what? You, you lean in. So we switch our volume. And if I want to tell you a most important point, I want to, and let me tell you something I haven't shared with anybody else. Now that volume says you're getting something juicy. So your, your, your pitch, your tone, your pace, your volume. If you can vary all of those, then you will be more engaging with your voice, regardless of whether you have a high or low voice. Right. Right, John. You have a great voice, John. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you, 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 have, you are a voiceover artist and you have, you know, really chiseled it in the manner that now people also often compare it with uh, Morgan Freeman and, uh, and James Earl Jones. <laughs> but a lot of people do not like whatever it is about their voice and they have to speak. How do they start liking their voice? How do they start with that, that when they listen to themselves, they feel confident about, about it all? Let's first start with why people don't like their voice. We hear our own voice through the vibrations in our skull. And when we are recorded and listen to the recording, that is the actual sound of our voice, which means that the voice we hear ourselves speak with, it will always sound lower than if we hear it on a recording. And that is the first place where you have to make peace. <laughs> is that when you listen to that voice on the recording, you say, that's my voice. Okay, that, that's what I really sound like. Because most people listen and go, is that me? That's not what I sound like. <laughs> so it is making peace with the voice to begin with. And then, because you get a good gauge, this is the uncomfortable part get used to recording yourself again and again and listen to it again and again. At least now you have a realistic gauge on what your voice is and then you can make adjustments to it. Then you can hear where you've made mistakes. You can hear where you've been using uptalk too often. So the key is getting a baseline, which is listening to that recording and acknowledging this is my voice and then deciding what you want your voice to sound like. And I always recommend get a voice coach or a speech language pathologist, but someone who can help you to use your voice effectively. Because there are some people who are talented with their voice, but they still use the voice incorrectly. And as a result, they end up damaging those vocal cords and sometimes can't sing or speak for a while. So if you're serious, about improving the voice, I highly recommend working with someone who can help you to work on your voice skills. Right, right, John. Now talking of presentation, talking of speech, speaking, public speaking, is that one thing the speaker do not know, or though some of them know, is whether it's all going well, whether people are liking it or not liking it. How do one know 
whether it's gone, it is going well. Maybe later on somebody will give them the right feedback or maybe not. If you are the CEO and there are a lot of, you know, yes men all the time, then they will not perhaps. How do you yourself know whether your speech is going right or it has gone right? How do you evaluate on that? The first thing I do when I'm presenting is I'm making eye contact with the audience at all times. I'm looking for my baseline pattern, which is how are people looking at me? Are they looking at me in the beginning? And then are they continuing to make eye contact? I've done it long enough. I've been doing it for 26 years that I can be in a room and I can read how people are. And it's because I'm used to looking at them and seeing face changes in the facial expression. So pay attention to the audience. I had one presentation that I was doing. It was for government agency. And the woman in the front row turned around and faced the back. I knew something was wrong. <laughs> so I stopped and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the message that there's something that's not landing here. Let's talk about it. I abandoned the entire plan that I had to find out why was there that much resistance. And it turned out, even though she was the only one who turned around and faced the other way, she wasn't the only one feeling that way. The entire room, and this was a conversation, or this was a topic on how to deal with difficult people. And everyone felt like they were being sent there by the difficult person. <laughs> it wasn't going to make a change. So by stopping what I was doing and opening up the conversation, I was enabled to get a little bit more of a gauge. So yes, pay attention. That's, that's how you do it. Pay attention to what's going on in the room, even if it's not a non-subtle sign, like someone turning around. Watch for the more subtle ones. See if you're getting engagement or not. Right, John. Right. You have written uh, your book, Speaking Notes, The Eight Essential Elements to Make Your Speech Music to Their Ears. Now, you know, there are so many things you have already said here. What is in it in the book so that people can learn more about public speaking, how to actually, because this is a growing field. A lot of people can make their, you know, life, their livelihood out of this. Absolutely. The book covers all of the eight essential elements that you can use to prepare your speech. I, I talked about three, the chorus, the verses, and the hook. There, there are more. And with the eight essential elements, I can give you a quick overview. The chorus, as I said, is what is the actual message that you're trying to get across. The verses, what's the supporting information? The hook is that part that they remember. What's called a pre-chorus is element number four. And it is an element that many people leave out. And when I say a pre-chorus, when you're listening to a song, there's a little place in between the verse and the chorus that's maybe just an instrumental. It tells you that you're making a transition. And within our speeches and presentations, we need to have clear transitions so that the audience can know when we're switching from one topic to another and follow us. Element number five is the mood. And the mood, if you think about a song, we can be doing something where we're distracted and we hear the song start playing and we go, ah, that's my song. And we love it because of the way the song makes us feel. That happens right at the beginning of the song. And so this goes to what we talked about with how do you start a speech? Your moods start the speech. 
Six is rhythm. And we talked a little bit about pausing and pacing, but also with rhythm is how many words do you use? And do you use big words? Do you use short words? Do you mix it up? The more you can change the rhythm when you speak is the more you can engage the attention of your audience. And then we have your bridge and your bridge tells you we're getting to the end of the song. We're about to take it to the crescendo and now we're taking it up. And then there's also expression. Expression is how do you say what you say? And this goes back to that tone. In music, you have a crescendo, which is you get louder, or diminuendo, which is you get quieter, or staccato. I told you before. <laughs> we can use all those musical styles and add expression to the way that we present. Your chorus, your verses, your hook, your pre-choruses or your transitions, your mood, your rhythm, your expressions, and then your bridge. Those would be the eight elements. And you get a step-by-step -step instruction on, and then work workbooks at the end or work pages at the end of each chapter so that you can construct your presentation. The, the key to all of this is, if you don't have a good presentation, it doesn't matter how good a presenter you are. You've got to have a good presentation. You can have a great singer, but if the song is no good, there's only so good they can make the song. You want to make sure right. with your speech, it has to be a good, solid speech or presentation, and then you can start working on the delivery. Right, John. Right. How do they get this book? Where do they get this book from? Second so thing is, John, so yeah, sorry. Uh, John, is that you do a lot of work for governments, you know, officials, non-profits, you are a professional speaker. So how do people connect with you uh, at the same time? How do they get your help if they need to? Well, to th let's go back to the, the book because you can get the same place as you can contact me. And that is johnwatkiss.com, www.johnwatkiss.com. If you want an autographed copy of the book, you can get it at the website. If you just want to get a regular book that doesn't have my handwriting in it, then you can go to Amazon because it is available on Amazon as well. And then to contact me, same thing, my website, www.johnwatkiss.com. And there you can see a couple of videos. I have some videos of me talking about some of the elements of making a speech music to their ear as well as my voiceover demos. But that'll be the place to find me. Right, right, John. My last question to you, John, is that you have played Mufasa. It's about circle of life, about leadership. When you were doing your work related to Mufasa, the Disney musical, you got to get into the character when you are doing about the works. What did you, what was your whole experience like? I'm sure you must have gained something out of living Mufasa in terms of leadership, in terms of responsibility, in terms of playing the role that you are supposed to. What is it that you would tell the leaders of today who are speech 
makers who tell their audience about their into their company when they are talking about their presentations, whether it's a CEO, it's a manager, or anybody else. What have you learned from Mufasa about leadership, and what would you like to convey it to the leaders who will be making those speeches that they learned about? Just right now, probably. There were so many lessons in that show, and I'll be brief because we, I know we have time here. Some of the major lessons that I have: number one is is we hear Mufasa tell this to Simba, where he says everything is connected in the great circle of life. And very often, we, especially for a leader, you might have an employee who is an employee now, who is moving up within the ranks, and we wait to respect them until they have a higher title. But Mufasa tells Simba, we have to respect all the creatures from the crawling ant to the leaping antelope. Because when they die, they become the grass and the antelope eat the grass. So we're all connected. And what's even more important than whether they move up within the organization or not, that each person is going to affect someone else based on the way their leader affects them. If we can see it, not from the perspective of what are they doing in this position, but how is their role affecting the organization and in the world? We would be amazed that everything's connected. And I'll take that to the last major point I'll make, and that is potential. If we see that potential in the people who work within our team, not what they're doing now, but what they're capable of. Dr. Miles Monroe says potential is all you can do but haven't done yet, all you can be but haven't become yet, how far you can go but haven't gone yet, and who you really are but no one knows yet. And I would say to the leaders that there was so much potential in the people within your team. And if you are an effective leader, you will help them grow it. When, when Mufasa returned to Simba, I'll, I'll give you this piece here. When we, he had passed away, but he returns to Simba and he reminds Simba about reaching his potential. He says, Simba, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten who you are and so have forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. You must take your place in the circle of life. And Simba says, well, how? Remember who you are. And to leaders, I remind you to remember your potential, the potential of your organization, and the potential of the people who work with you. On this note, it's a wrap on this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Lab. Thank you so much, John. Ajay, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.